Being an expert sucks. As a teacher of spiritual intelligence and emotional health, I get cornered into being the guy who has all the answers. I'd like to take this opportunity to make a confession. I don't. What I do have are convictions. I have theories. I have questions. I find myself looking around and I'm like, we can't stay here. Stop setting up your tent. We can't stay here. Through my journey, it's become evident that being a participant is no longer enough. It's time to become reformers. These are my confessions. To get deeper in this conversation, visit MikeMayashiro.com. part two of a three-part interview series I did with Kathy Baldock. We're going to jump right back into the conversation right where we left off from the last episode. Very cool to get to hear Kathy talk about some other stories she doesn't share publicly or doesn't really talk about, but just to get to know the person behind the work and then get into some of the things that she faced in her process. I love the stuff she shared in this episode. I hope you enjoy it as much as I have. What a relational journey, right? And conversation and thing to navigate. And I think it's difficult for anybody to change their theology and their mind about this without that heart posture without that connection without having some a human being whose life is bearing the scars of these terrible beliefs and ideologies that's that should be compelling for those of us who are human and are paying attention it should be (laughs) what it it caused is it just it just opened this door of is this possible have i gotten this wrong is it important that i figure out what god thinks about these people because i so successfully kept them divided And then December, it was a snowy day, and I was doing my hair and reading the New York Times on my laptop. When I was reading it, on the front page of the New York Times, there was this article. It was a picture of two men holding hands with the Bible on each of their laps, and they were um, praying. And it was an article about the Gay Christian Network, and Justin Lee was interviewed in it. The quote of the day, like they always put just below the fold and they put it on one half of the page. And it was this quote that Justin had said, and it said something about gay Christians. And I remember thinking, gay Christians? This is 2006. Shocked. Been walking in this community, doing this work for, not work, like doing relationships for five years. Never put the two words together. So yeah, like people that admire me, like I'm not that smart. It takes a very long time. But when I get it, I am that smart. I read this article on my laptop and because I was on my laptop and it linked to everything, I was able to click on the Gay Christian Network site and I was positive. I knew what this mission, I was looking for the mission statement because I knew it would all be about sex, 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 all kinds of sex. And so I was positive. (laughs) I mean, how crazy can I be? So I go to the mission statement and I read it and I said out loud, oh no, I'm in trouble. I agree with this mission statement. What was and the mission statement? It was, you know, service to God, education of the church, love of Jesus Christ, love of the Bible, but you could be gay. And it, I was just like, how is this possible? And I n- happened to notice when I went to their website that they were having a conference because now I'm here on the website. And then that Sunday, my pastor did a sermon on the other. And the other he was talking about was that year in 2006, we were dealing with immigration crisis in this country, right? A lot of Hispanic people were marching and pastors were marching with them. And my pastor was the only white pastor that was marching with immigrants in this town. And so he had a heart for the marginalized. So I was sitting in church and I was listening to him talk about the marginalized, but he wasn't saying immigrants because we had a lot of people that wouldn't have been okay with that. And a lot of people left our church over that, you know, 
protection of the immigrant. Every time he said the other, though, I remember sitting there and think and put I would put in gay people. I just kept putting in gay people. It worked fast on me. And I walked up to him afterwards and he said, Kathy, you're bothered. And I said, <laughs> said to him, it through tears. Do you know that there are gay Christians out there? It's not what he was expecting. He was like, I love Hispanic people. I'll march with you. Nope. It's not what I said. I said, do you know that there are gay Christians out there? And he said, no. And I said, there are. They're having a conference next month in Seattle. You're my pastor and you're my spiritual covering. And I want your permission and protection and spiritual covering to go. Because I want to go see what they look like. I can't even imagine them. I can't even imagine this is a thing. And so he shocked me. And he said, the church will fund your airfare and your hotel and your registration. And he said, because Kathy, there is clearly a voice crying in the wilderness and I can't hear it, but perhaps you can. And I think what he was expecting was for me to come back, hear it, and then do the change work at home, right? Like I'd be part of that. They want to be Christians. Let's bring them in. Because several years later, we came to an impasse where he thought it would be more comfortable for me to leave the church because I was now an activist. You know, what he imagined for me is not what happened. But I went to this conference. No, I called Justin Lee. I found him. If I want to find you, I can find you. I found him and had a conversation. And you know, Justin, he's the sweetest guy on the planet. And I said, this is who I am. And I don't know anything. But I just found out that gay Christians existed. And I want to come. I think I said, look at you. I want to come see you and look at you. Look at you. Look at you. Is that awful? Like, not in a zoo type thing. Like, I can't imagine this is true. Is this happening? Is this like, is this a thing? And so I went up to Seattle from Thursday to Sunday to this gay Christian network conference in January of 2007. I was the first straight person that had ever arrived at their conference. And I just kind of passed under the radar because there was nobody, there was no place for me to say, hey, I'm straight until one night and I'd never seen it happen again. And since, but I, they had these very long testimony nights that don't do anymore because there was only 200 people there. It was early in, early in there. I think it was only their third or fourth year. I was sitting and people were getting up to testify. I could barely contain the spirit jumping out of my body. I mean, if I didn't get up and speak, I would have like combusted. And I stood up, it was probably near one o'clock in the morning. And I took my Bible up and I said, I have a word. I mean, how freaky is that? It's not something I'm given to. You know, I've been in charismatic churches. It's not that it bothers me, but show up as the only straight person and like open your mouth and not know what's going to come out. That's intimidating. I stood up and it was the passage from the Valley of the Dry Bones and that God was raising up the Valley of the Dry Bones out of that community. And the entire place was sobbing and crying. And then everybody knew I was straight. <laughs> What a way to announce yourself. Let's talk about the Valley of the Dry Bones. I'm straight. But I've been to every conference since, except for one during COVID. I'm one of the oldest members now, and here I am, straight, right? But what happened that night, Mike, was the first night, I don't know what to expect. I've never even seen a gay Christian. The first gay Christian I met that I knew of was Justin Lee. I was standing at the back of the room intentionally because no one knew this existed. And I was going to like take in the scene with my eyes. I was going to make my eyes a camera and I was going to stare and get it and stare and get it. I was just going to memorize what I was seeing because I knew I was in a unique place. 
when they started singing worship songs first night. I was standing back there and to watch 200 gay Christians with their hands, most of them with their hands raised and singing these worship songs as gay people do in the most beautiful voices you can imagine. I mean, there's a disproportionate number of beautiful voices in the gay community. I can say it because I'm around them. I couldn't believe it. So much so that I actually took my shoes off. I was prostrate on the floor because I, I knew I was on a, in holy ground. I knew it. And I thought, again, I am in trouble because my heart and my spirit get this, but my head is swirling in evangelical, fundamentalist, traditional Christian rhetoric. And how this space, how do I make this space less? Because my spirit and my heart are breaking because I know what I see is the truth. So that was another huge turnaround. That, with a combination of Neto saying that, forced me to the scriptures, which I had avoided for five years. So people that are struggling with this, at least you've got resources now, right? And if you're not digging into these resources, my goodness, and you know there's a problem, you can see there's a problem. You see LGBT people being used as political pawns and the other group to hate. And you know something is wrong with this because of whatever. You have a gay nephew, a gay child, a husband that comes out. You know, you come out, whatever. You're struggling with this. If you don't dig into this with humility and bypass that arrogant, I know you are being lazy because the information is there and there is so much of it. And the information and the theology and the stories and the books on the affirming side are solid and they are good. And they keep getting more and more, keep getting produced. The resources are solid. So if you're not doing the work and you know something is wrong, shame on you. These are people. It took me, don't do it the way I did it. It took me six years. Oh, horrible. Totally. I get it. I agree. It took me, took me 16. Now I'm gay. Thank you for sharing that, Kathy. There are some details there I'd never heard before. That was no, so... I don't, I, because I don't often, like when I go in to speak, I want to like hit you with all the details to compel you to an academic stance on this. And I always want to skip my story. I want to say to somebody, like, there's a bio sheet, like, read it, you know, on the toilet or wherever, like, we've got work to do. And the work is not me telling you the story, but to your audience, who is me, maybe it is me telling the story. I mean, I can do academics all day long, but if you can't make this distance, do the work because it's compelling. I cannot imagine digging into this issue, the academics and the, the books that are out there and not coming out affirming because it's so solid. The work wow. is solid. Oh, Kathy, thank you. That was, what a gift. How many of us relate to what you just described? And there's just aspects of that we just haven't experienced yet. Like what a gift. So thank you for sharing that. I Here's love it. The thing that Ed brought up this weekend, he was talking to Yvette about it. He said, did she ever tell you the time she wrote to the New York Times? This is a big tell on me. So Jean Robinson, it was 2004 and Jean Robertson had just been uh, made a bishop of the, the area around New Hampshire in the Episcopal church. And he was partnered, not married yet because there was no such thing as marriage. 2004 is a big year. So marriage equality comes up. I can, I can somewhat deal with this, but I'm not gonna vote for you. Jean Robertson you know, says that he wants to be bishop of 
or they appoint him as bishop of the Episcopal Church. Well, I've been a New York Times reader, subscriber since I was a teenager, very loyal New Yorker. I wrote this really eloquent scripture quoting letter to the New York Times saying he deserves to have his equal rights, like he deserves to be civilly married. But if I walked in my church one Sunday and found out that the pastor speaking to me from the pulpit was a partnered gay man who's obviously in a sexual relationship, he's calling himself partnered and married, I would walk out of that church. I mean, I can handle their civil rights. Don't mess with my Bible. I wrote that letter in 2004. Thank you, New York Times editors, that they never published it. <laughs> I wrote that letter. I, that's where I was. Like, I can get this, but don't you go messing with my Bible. Oh, so you wrote that while you were straddling. You were still hiking with Neto and doing that. Of the course. Yeah. But everybody liked me, right? The gays liked me because I was nice. The church liked me because I was a Christian. I didn't try to merge the two. I didn't try to say, hey, you, let's shake hands. Let's do kumbaya. No, I didn't do any of that stuff. I had them very distinctly separate in my head. And some of your watchers may be the same way. It's harder to do that now because the information is there and because marriage equality is here and we do know married people. But at the time, can I mean... So Ed was laughing and he said, you don't tell people that. And I said, well, you know, no, I don't because it doesn't come up. But I, I thought this morning when I was hiking, I'm going to tell Mike that story so that people know, like, I really was sure about this. Wow, Kathy, my goodness. <laughs> Thank you for sharing. Yeah, that's, yeah, that's, that's a pretty not... bad story, isn't it? I'm honest. Totally. Yeah, that's pretty bad. That's a pretty bad story. I would say in my coming out process, the people from my life, the ones who were doing that, who were like, hey, I love you, you're fine, do your thing, be gay, but do not, that can't come over here. I'm like, yeah, that, I hate that. That's worse than you just straight up telling me you don't approve of this, you know what I mean? Seriously, I, I take such offense to that thing right there. That thing so, you did, that thing you lived, <laughs> that thing you actually were so proud of, like, this is a letter that's gonna, I would like open up the times, like, where is my letter? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. And so I, I think that's fair. Like people in this process, they are so disconnected. They don't realize how awful that is. Just how hip, like double standard hypocritical it is to hold those ideologies while still pretending like you're loving toward the gay person. Like, nope, like nope. no, it's not real. I mean, I can hold that, but it's not the truth. It's pretty ignorant. It's just not listening to the other person. Yeah. It's not listening at all. And right. as you said, the friends in the LGBTQ community that loved me through that stuff, thank God for them, because there were plenty of reasons to say, like, she's just a religious nut. Like, Neto, you go hiking with her all you want, but don't you ever bring her to a party again, even though I was bringing the best cupcakes they had ever had. Don't <laughs> you, like, let her drop off her cupcakes and go away. <laughs> Yeah, and I can sympathize with that attitude. I probably wouldn't want you at my party either. You know, like, and that's not because I want to be exclusive. I don't want to be that way, but it is that is just so two-faced in my experience. Like, it's so expensive to be vulnerable and come out. So to be met with someone who's doing the double thing is like that's such an like an affront to everything I've paid to stand in this space, right? Anyway, so, so I have so the fact that I have done it all along and somehow in the end come to these like. You can't, someone can't say to me, Kathy, you don't get it. You don't understand how like this, this I feel, this I feel. Hey, I felt all those things for prolonged, protracted periods of time mm -hmm. until I decided to sit down and do the theology. Yeah. That was the game changer. Yeah, cool. 
Okay, great. So I want to talk about the work you've done, the things you've discovered. I know, Kathy, you could spend the next, you just said your sessions, your eight hours. Eight hours. What did your research show you? What did you find in your research? And then if you had to break down your findings into major points, what would your major points be in your process of, I know that's a loaded question, so feel free. There were steps. So the first step, the first big bunch I did was actually, it was that very next winter when I realized that oh, this was like all messed around in here and these gay people exist. I need to do something. It didn't take me long. I came back and I said, I wonder what the Bible does say because I've been told what the Bible says, but I wonder what the Bible does say. We had a huge amount of snow here at one point and I worked for a technology company at the time and they said, no one's going to be in the offices wanting to see us. So everybody just take vacation between Christmas and New Year's. I decided to look at the Bible. And so I couldn't even get out of my neighborhood. They weren't even, they were trying to keep the mountain passes open. And I couldn't even like drive to a hiking trail. I was snow, I was either snowshoeing or skiing every day right out of my driveway. So I put a big table in my living room and I took out my ample concordance Bible versions And I decided to take one set of passages, not just one verse, right? Because some of them are passages. One of the six called clobber passages a day and try to get the, try to read it in context and only one a day. And so I'd spend several hours doing it because there was, again, there's no resources out there. I can't go to Candy Walker Connections or the Reformation Project or Q Christian Fellowship or Queer Christian or Gay. I can't go to any of those things. They don't exist. So I just did it by myself. And every day when I finished, I would try to finish around two so that I could go snowshoeing or skiing. I found myself crying as I was skiing or snowshoeing around the neighborhood because I realized that the verses I had been told were anti-gay had nothing to do with being gay. I realized that quickly. Like, so this is 15 years ago. I realized it and all it took me Without the, again, without the resources that are available to us now, there's so much online. I mean, really, all you have to do is watch my five-hour video and you will know more than I knew in my first 10 years of doing this. It hurt each day to realize that my tribe had done this. I almost didn't want to go to the next day because it was like, well, maybe the next one will say gay people are disgusting. Maybe I hit the wrong one today. When I came out of that, I was convinced the verses were being misused. And then I tried to talk to other Christians about it. Years of that being painted pretty quickly as an outcast and a heretic. And which is an unusual thing for someone like me, who's popular (laughs) in my own family. I remember once I went back East to my brother's house. He lives in North Carolina. I can't remember what year the Democratic National Convention was in Charlotte, but I had been there for gay pride. I did this action of standing against the street preachers for years. When it wasn't cool to do it, I was doing it with some people, some gay people. My brother's family was very conservative. They could handle that I was there for the Democratic National Convention, which I wasn't, but it was the same time. When the family got together, because I also had my mother with me, who also stood with me against the street preachers, little old buttercup who you met who's 90 now, she's like, these people are so lovely. These people are so, what people said that there's, this is just like a big festival at a carnival. It's just like going to the state fair. These people are so lovely. I've never met such lovely people in my life. So my mother's totally pro-gay. And so we go up to my brother's house and the family finds out that I'm not there for the DNC, which would have been pretty bad. I'm there for gay pride, 
Well, all of a sudden, like they all circled me and they was like, well, how was the trip, Kathy? How's the weather out in Nevada? Are you know, would you like another hot dog? <laughs> they didn't want to talk to me at all. You know, some of the younger nephews have come around, but friends were kind of distancing and some family members were, and certainly church members were. But Mike, I knew, I didn't know I was right about my theology yet, but I knew I was right about how to love. I knew that was right. I knew we had made some very large mistakes. So that was level one. And then years of trying to talk to people about it. And then thinking in about 2010, there's got to be a better way to communicate. Like there's just got to be a better way to talk to people about this where I'm not touching that third rail all the time. Like what does arsenicoitai mean? What does malakoi mean? Did Paul see homosexuals? What is temple prostitution? There's got to be a way to have this conversation that's bigger. When I started thinking about all the objections I was hearing, I naturally have this part of me that says, well, why this? Well, why this? I, you know, my poor mother could never just say because, right? Because that never worked for me. I was that problem child, like why, 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 why? She actually used to call me when I was a kid. She would call me, she called me the Spanish Inquisition. That's what she used to call me because it was just like question, 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 question. Like she's a pest, but yay, thank goodness I'm a pest question, 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 as I kept trying to get to the closest I could to how something started or changed, I realized that I might have an ability to communicate my way of thinking about things to people in context, which was the first book. It worked. And then I would teach. I spent several years teaching what I learned in the first book, Timelines, right? Timelines came up afterwards because I was on my way to San Francisco to teach. And I thought, how do I communicate all these words to people in another way for different kinds of learners? And again, on a hiking trail, good things are always on hiking trails. I thought of timelines. That's how the timeline came about. So I bought paper on the way down to this church in San Francisco, got there early and said, I want to try something. I want to try something that I think might work. And it worked right away. When I was teaching one time in California, a man, a gay, I didn't know he was gay, had been to one of my six hour, seven hour, eight hour things. And then he came to another one. I was teaching in California again about six months later. And by lunchtime, he was crying. And I went over to him at the break and I said, you know, can I help you? This is Ed, Ed Oxford, my research partner, Ed. And Ed at the time was in his late forties and still closeted. He tried to come out 20 years before that. He was a mission missionary to Japan, got shoved back in the closet, was on staff at an American Baptist church, went back into the closet, changed his career from being a pastor to being a financial advisor. And the reason he became a financial advisor was to make more money so that he could go through reparative therapy without anybody knowing. So Ed and I are really an unlikely pair to be doing this. Like he didn't want to be gay. And I didn't think gay Christians existed. Perfect. God says, perfect. These are the two that I'm going to make, but let change things. Perfect. Wow. Only God. Isn't that crazy? He's crying. And I talked to him and he said to me, all of this, I think you're telling the truth. And I said, yeah, I've got to try. And it made sense to him. And when he heard, when he saw that 1946 was the first time the word homosexual was in the Bible, that registered huge with him. He says, like, I've been to seminary. I've been to Bible school. And why have I never heard that this was the first time? 
So he went and he checked me out. And the way I taught that was I would say the members of this team, the 12 to 15 to 22 at any one time, but the original members of the team, seven Old Testament, seven New Testament, one leader, 15, were born between 1870 and 1917. So then I would say, what? Because we've now looked at what was understood about homosexuality in that time period. Do they understand same-sex attraction? Is it a mental illness? Is it a perversion? Is it a sexual deviancy? Is it a crime? All of the above. And what would these people from 1870 to 1917 becoming young men in the turn of the century and in the 1930s, 40s, what were they told about homosexuality? And so I believed right from that, looking at context and knowing there was no theology, because I have, Mike, I have gone through psychological and pastoral psychological journals starting in 1944. Like, did they use this verse to change gay people? No, it was this accepted as a mental illness or a deviation and they would send those people to psychiatrists, it was not a moral issue. So the Bible, even when it had the word homosexual in it, it was not used as a moral sin issue until the 1970s. And there's the word sitting there because it made sense. They were in the list with other criminals. It was a crime. So when those men that were sitting in that room came to 1 Corinthians and they look at Arsenicoite and Malakoy, first mistake they do is they combine them. Big mistake because they're talking about different things and they look to their culture and they say, what do we see in our culture that's excessive sex, criminal behavior, non-procreative sex? And in the 1930s, when they did the translation, they did that translation work. And we know because we've been to the archives between 1937 and 1940, when they looked at the culture and they said, these excessive, abusive, criminal non-procreative acts. We can't say catamite and sodomite, which had been the most recent translation. The point of the RSV was to modernize language. So how do we modernize catamite and sodomite? Homosexual. And in the Bible, it goes. No theology around it. So I would teach this. And I would say, I believe that that decision was ideological and cultural. Pretty solid ground when you understand the culture. And so Ed heard this. And Ed went out and started buying Bibles, Bibles and commentaries and lexicons, impressive collection, because he wanted to make sure that was true. And he didn't want that record to be erased because we think it's always, well, how many of your followers, listeners think that's always been in the Bible? It has not. The behaviors that were listed in the Bible were abusive, excessive sexual behaviors that people often use as either acts of violence or persuasion or dominance. And as far as I'm concerned, heterosexuals have that ability to the max too. This was about a sexual behavior that's abusive and excessive, using other people, using other people sexually, using sex, using other people sexually. Ed started buying up the Bibles and all this stuff. And so that's when he invited me to his house and I saw this collection and I thought, well, he's serious about this stuff. And so he became one of the phone calls I would just accept. Like everybody goes to voicemail, except a few people. You don't go to voicemail. He started digging around and he said, you know, the head of that translation team, Luther Weigel, I said, yes. He was a dean at Yale, dean of divinity at Yale. Yes. Well, his translation papers, his archived papers are at Yale. He didn't even finish the sentence. Yale University. And I said, I'm going. 
So we spent five days in the Yale archives looking at 94 boxes of Luther Weigel's notes and life and 22 rolls of microfilm, which all totaled about 130,000 documents, trying to find why the team used this word. And it was such a non-issue that we didn't find the answer until the third afternoon when we were in the microfilm archives. And I came across 13 pages of back and forth letters where a young man, we didn't know how old he was at the time, but he was 21 and he didn't use his real name. He used his first and middle name. And he wrote the letter from a PO box. And he asked the head of the translation team, he said, I think you made a mistake here. First, these words shouldn't be combined and they don't mean homosexual. This is what they mean. And nobody, this is 1959, had challenged it. So that's amazing in itself. Because at the time though, Mike, homosexuality was a mental illness and a crime and a sexual deviation. Legally, morally, all of that stuff. So when you look at that list of evildoers that aren't going to heaven, homosexual belonged there because we didn't know it was a person with a different kind of attraction. We didn't know it was just another part of human sexuality. It made sense. So David challenges him in 1959. But by 1959, more is known than was known in 1938. 20 years had passed. And Weigel says, you're right. We made a mistake. That letter had never been found before. And that started us on a journey of how did we get to this point? How, what, trying to get people to understand when they made that decision in the 1930s, what other decision could they have made? It, there was no malice attached. So that's the work we're doing. And if you could say, what have I learned? Going through Ed's commentaries from the 1600s, those verses were never interpreted as same-sex behavior until commentaries in the 1980s. Use in the 1970s. It always meant people that were doing excessive, lust-filled, non-procreative sex. Very consistently old things. They didn't want to talk about the act that was being done because even at the time, same-sex behavior, they didn't even start to figure that out, that people had same-sex attractions till the end of the 1800s. End. This has been the thinking all along. Why do people do excessive sex? Why do people do non-procreative sex? But we have let biblical sex in the first century would have been non-passionate, couldn't enjoy it, sex one way, penis, vagina, sex, sex for the intent of procreation, and even in marriage, chastity, unless you're intending to procreate. So somehow by the 1920s, We've unhinged sex from procreation and women are allowed to enjoy sex and we're allowed to have sex towards procreation. Pastors in their skinny jeans can have sex with their hot wife, right? That's all okay. That would not have been okay in the first century. So we have let heterosexual people progress through cultural changes, understanding sex, understanding how babies are made, which they didn't even understand. There was an egg involved until 1870. It was all about the man's sperm. That's why you got to protect it. That's why it's got to go in the same, the right place. Heterosexual sex has progressed to this thing where we can enjoy ourselves and have non-procreative sex. And there's plenty of ways to do it. But homosexual sex, stick them back in the first century with not 2000 years of progress. It's pretty bad. I know that's a lot of words, but there you go. <laughs> oh, that was amazing. Thank you. So helpful. And man, I had chills multiple times while you're talking, like not just on the 
academics, but just the spirit that you're of and what's around the work you're doing. People will say, how do you know you're doing the right thing? I feel the joy of the Lord. I don't feel like I'm going against God. I constantly feel like I'm doing the right thing and the joy of the Lord just sits within me. So like, that's my discerning spirit. I feel God in this work. Totally. And yeah, same. The joy that's relevant. I wouldn't have used that word, but you're right there. While you were talking, I had multiple moments where I'm being flooded with the presence of God and the spirit of the Lord just moving all over my body while you're talking right now. And part of it was like, there was an invitation for me just to kind of get slipped into like a euphoric, like, you know, rapturous state with the Lord. I'm like, oh, that's not appropriate right now. I got to stay focused. But there was that pull. And I haven't felt that in a long time. There's spirit all over what you're doing too, in addition to obviously the academics and the research and all that. So I just wanted to throw that on there just to affirm. Yeah, that's profound. It's beautiful. I was not expecting that. But what a crazy thing to acknowledge the double standard of heterosexual sex gets to go through this progress of the last 2000 years but when it comes to gay people we're going to shove them back to the first century and hold them to the same standard those people were held to and disregard everything we've gone through to liberate sex for people today right like that's that's such a great point okay so that concludes part two we're going to get into part three in the next episode if your coming out experience wasn't awesome or you were outed or you haven't come out yet but you want to email my team at contact at mikemeyershow.com i'll put the email address below the episode we're having a giant coming out party for a bunch of people who want to jump in on that celebration with us on june 1st if you're a queer person who would like to join us and come out together with other queer people that day with us then please email us if you're an ally if you're someone who would like to be present on that live event and just celebrate and cheerleading these people coming out of the closet for the first time or in a redemptive way, please email us as well. We'd love to get you connected in that way and get you the information. Thank you guys for watching and we'll see you at the next episode. Listen, there's more where this came from. If you want to see how deep this rabbit hole goes, check out MikeMyashiro.com.